Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it is Annie McManus here. This is Changes. You are very welcome. Hiya lads, I am coming to you from the garden shed. Spring has sprung, the lilacs are out, everything is great. I hope you're feeling the benefits of a bit more light on your face. Spring really just in full flow, the flowers showing off to the max. Just the idea of summer ahead. It's a lovely time of the year, May is my favourite month. And I'm really happy to be able to tell you some news actually this week with regards to changes. We are going live for the first time ever. We're going to be doing this podcast in front of a live audience. It's happening on the 24th of May in London as part of the London podcast show. And our special guest on the night is the drag beast from Dagenham East herself. That's what she calls herself. Ella Vade best drag name ever and drag persona of a guy called Nick Collier. Nick has only been doing drag for a couple of years. He only really started it in COVID. He's got some really interesting stories of change himself uh, and I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you. I think it will be really fun celebrating that world of drag, celebrating that whole kind of counterculture and also just Nick's personal changes from working in Morrison's to kind of inventing this whole new world for himself and uh, doing so well in it. It's going to be really inspiring really interesting and hopefully a proper laugh as well so that's changes live with myself in conversation with ella vade on the 24th of may and if you want to get tickets go to the podcast show london.com that is the podcast show london.com and now for this week so this week's guest is one of my favorite stand-up comedians his name is joe lysett you will have seen joe on all the tv panel shows too many to list Maybe you've seen him host Live at the Apollo. Maybe you've seen him on tour. He's done two huge sellout UK tours. Maybe you've seen him present Joe Lysett's Got Your Back on Channel 4, which is a show that's a bit like Watchdog, but fun, uh, where Joe helps small businesses and challenges large companies who aren't really behaving very well. Um, It won a Royal Television Society Award and was nominated for a BAFTA. Maybe you've seen Joe presenting The Great British Sewing Bee. Or maybe you've seen him taking over from Richard Ayoade as host of Travel Man. He's also an artist. Uh, I love his art. It's super bright, popping colours. I especially love his series of paintings of flowers where he calls them all slags. And Joe is pansexual and openly addresses LGBTQ plus issues in his work. He's also a comedian who enacts change through his comedy. He likes to invite people to think, actively questioning the patriarchy and capitalism. And if you go and see his current tour, More, 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 How Do You Lice It? How Do You Lice It? You will find out how he is affecting change in the most beautiful ways was also being brilliantly funny he never stops at wanting to make you laugh joe lysett he even takes on the government yes we do talk about the sue gray report don't you worry the official inquiry into partygate and the lockdown socializing in government buildings which joe made headlines over
offer. He discusses why doing what he did was so important to him after his big adult change, which was the death of one of his closest friends. So this is a conversation that will make you laugh and maybe make you cry as well. And also before we start, I should preface the conversation by saying if you don't know who Nadine Dorries is, she's a Tory MP, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport for the UK. Joe had a meeting with her at the BAFTAs, as you will hear. So happy to bring this to you. Welcome to Changes, Joe Lysett. Hello there. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really happy to have some time with you. I've been really enjoying watching clips of you on YouTube doing all your comedy um, in preparation for this and watching Mm. Travel Man, which I have to say seems like the best job Uh, that you could have on television. Like absolutely spoiled with that one. Really right. spoiled, yeah. I know every every comedian now has like a travel show, but it's become a bit of a trope. But I think because they've done so many series with uh, Richard Iwadi, who hosted it before, they just know so well how to like make the experience great for everyone. So yeah. I'm there, and every time I'm there, I'm like, "How have you got away with this? How is this <laughs> so nice?" I think yeah. it's it's an extraordinary um, experience, yeah. and yeah, love it. Well, um, it's such a fun watch. If you're listening and you haven't watched it, do go. It's it's really fun. Um, and also watching, yeah, as I said, like comedy clips. You are known, maybe, I don't know if you are, but it feels like you're, you're becoming known now for being someone who is really doing kind of activism in your comedy. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. there's a slant in everything I watch where you're pushing for openness, for acceptance, and kind of slagging off people who exploit or capitalise off the less powerful or marginalised people. And it seems very anti-establishment and it done in such a clever way in that you're kind of, you're making people laugh, but you're also making people curious. And you're, it's revelatory comedy as opposed to reductive comedy. And I wondered when you kind of realised that that was something you could do and was there a moment in your career when there was a kind of light bulb situation where you were like, I can do this, I can actually try and enact change through being a comedian. Yeah, that's very nice of you to say. I I would dispute that it's all um, activism when I'm sort of talking about my cock and balls. (laughs) Yes, Slightly slightly less activist that. Yeah. Um, But there is definitely increasingly a slant in it. I did an interview with Eva Wiseman in The Observer few weeks ago and I was saying I'm not a political comedian she was like you are and I just don't think of myself as political comedian because I think of you know your your Andy Zaltzmans and your Nish Kumars and people who actually are you know doing political stand-up and really brilliant um, political work I don't feel like that but the more I do recently particularly the more I realise I'm sort of accidentally a political comedian but in the way that we're all sort of accidentally having to become political because of the state of politics in the country at the minute like I didn't want to be talking about this because I don't want to be cross about these things I want these things to be done properly but the government that we have in currently and even just the fact that I'm talking to you about this publicly on a podcast I never used to talk about my political leanings never mentioned who I voted for I would always try and take the piss out of everyone but the current batch of um, politicians in power are so uh, seem to be me so immoral and so corrupt and so out for their own um, gains that we're all forced to kind of we're watching so many of our institutions sort of break down around us um, 
that you, you don't really have a choice. You have to sort of you do have to sort of pick a, a side for for want of a. It's I don't think it's a binary quite like that, but you do have to sort of go like, mm, at what point do I go? I'm not happy with this. The thing that I, I realised I wanted to talk about was when Dominic Cummings was um, fanning about going when he's off going to, on um, his drive. When he's going on his drive. And obviously it was, I was cross about that like everyone else was because it was, uh, you know, uh, double standards of the government. But also I had this other thing with my friend who died in lockdown and, you know, mm. didn't get to see him when he died. And I'd been with him for a long time and up until that point, but had was playing everything by the rules, had a small funeral, all of those things. And this prick's like fanning off with his family to um, Barnard Castle. But I was t- so cross that I didn't actually, I couldn't use it well. I couldn't use it properly. Yeah. And so it was like, actually, I can't, this, it, I'd just come across as that. You know, when sometimes you're just so angry, you just sort of end up just go like, oh, and you're a knob. You know, just like you, you, you don't articulate yourself well because you're so cross. Yeah. And actually, I just knew that I needed to sit with it. And then obviously when uh, Partygate came out and all of that, that was the sort of catalyst for me kind of talking about it a bit more openly and a bit more with a bit more bite and spice to it I suppose mm. before that I suppose I was doing a lot of um activisty sort of stuff it's more like just being a bit irritating for companies and that kind of thing when I do got your back and um the documentary I made about shell and all that it's like yeah. but it's I, I think for that that side of things it's very addictive Annie being <laughs> like righteous and sort of going like, I know what's right and wrong, and I'm going to tell these baddies what's right and wrong. And that's, I suppose, why we love watching kind of um, action films where the, the goody wins and the baddie, you know, mm. gets you know knocked over or whatever. Uh, I've I sort of put myself in this sort of goody role, which I realise is a very dangerous place to be because the minute <laughs> you step out of line, ah. even a little bit, they're coming for you. Um, and I'm sure I'll be eradicated by some stupid um something or other at some point but um yeah it just became very addictive really so it was it's sort of mainly just I love the thrill of it I love whatever chemical goes I don't take drugs I enjoy a glass of wine but um whatever chemical is released when I say to an audience something about something I've done which you know has pissed off a insurance company or something like that I love that chemical that's what I'm going for really it's not any um altruistic desire to do right or whatever it's just literally I want my fix and that's how I get it I mean there is that I suppose the kind of very straightforward like me against the enemy you know good bad there is a kind of binary aspect to Joe Lice has got your back and all that but then in your stand-up it is way more personal and way more nuanced and you explain stuff in a way that is very patient and kind of so relatable so, you know, you're talking to an entire audience about pansexuality or whatever. Yeah. And there's a kind of way that you do things where it's wrapped up in kind of personal self-deprecation and, and also just curiosity. You just invite everyone in, I suppose. And and I think that's a really powerful mm. way of opening people's minds. And I don't mean to say that everyone that comes to your gig is some sort of Neanderthal. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's just they it's can be. creating they a can conversation, be. you know. Yeah, well, that word curiosity is is interesting because I I always think that when I sort of see people sort of particularly around LGBTQ stuff saying like, oh, God, there's another letter, is there? (laughs) Oh, we have to add another letter, do we now? Um, That is a lack of curiosity. It's a real um, void of curiosity to sort of say, can we just have the four letters now? It's like the the world is so full of amazing things. I mean, there's hundreds of countries and we're not we're not saying, oh, can we not just have two? (laughs) 
you know, it's like uh, there's there's so much wonder and diversity and uh, a nuance to life, and that's what makes life exciting and brilliant. Why not allow ourselves as humans to have that? Why sort of restrict ourselves to being? you know, binaries and all these things. And I know it sounds all nonsense and left. And this is the other thing. It's like, I don't, I try not to take any of it too seriously because essentially I'll be dead before mm. I know it. And and so will the rest of us. So it's like, I, I try not to get too bogged down in any of it really. But I do find it extraordinary when I sort of hear from people when they sort of say like, oh, I can't be bothered with this they and them stuff. It's he or she. And I think... Why? Why can't you be bothered? What part of your life? Why are you so bored of life? Why? Why not be excited by this? Like it just seems so. Um, it's it, it seems strange to me. I sort of pity them, really. If anything, like, they are not excited by the possibility that things could be different. Were you always this curious person? Were you a curious kid as well? Hmm. I don't know. Actually, I just realised I'd just done a diatribe about they and them whilst pouring. <laughs> Light oat milk into my coffee. <laughs> what have I become? What have I become? <laughs> Listen, that's my favourite oat milk too. Again, another reason for diversity. Exactly. We all thought, oh, they've done it with almond. <laughs> then we thought, oh, soy. God, it's got to be soy. And then they brought out oat. What, what next? next? Rice. And I'll have it. Whatever next, yeah. I'll try it and I'll probably yeah. fall in love with it. Yeah. I'm into it. Um, was I into, what So, was like, I'm imagining you as a little kid, a kid writing letters to people, and what were you like in school and as a kid? I really wanted to be uh, friends with the teachers. I was that <laughs> prick. I, all of my friends were, like, older. I was, like, hung out with the older kids. I wasn't anti-authority in the way that I am now, I suppose, but I think it started to sow the seeds. I was trying to play the game, and I was trying to be liked by the teachers, and I was trying to be whatever. The more I went through that process, the more I realised that like, they were sort of trying to mould me into someone that was going to wear a suit mm. and get a job as a lawyer, and, and that probably wasn't going to work for me. It's quite astute to know as a kid that you're not going to be that person who's able to wear a suit and be a lawyer. You sensed it, did you? I don't know if I knew that then. I kind of followed the path of least resistance because I started doing musical theatre things when I was at school in the summer holidays. And that was just so much more fun and interesting to me. Like, I just couldn't see why I'd be... The whole rest of term time was a sort of waste of, like, kind of exams and nonsense and then suddenly there's this amazing thing that you do in the summer where you get to show off and wear costumes and all that I was like why am I doing anything else I knew I wanted to be in that world but um wasn't quite sure how and actually I did radio first so I did a lot of student radio and things like that because mm. I wanted to just do something where well you were a talker I'm a talker I like to you speak. went to where you yeah. could talk what were your family like did they encourage this musical theater thing who was the kind of enabler of that Oh, yeah, that, uh, mum and dad have always just been like, yeah, cool, whatever. And wow. I remember every Wednesday I would go to do a work experience at a radio station in Litchfield. Can I ask how old you were, Joe? Sorry. Yeah, 60, it was um, 16, 17, 18, around right. that time. So you had, you had Wednesday afternoons off to do some extracurricular stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, most people just went and like smoked fags somewhere and said that they were doing, they're helping the nan or something. In some ways, wish I'd done the same. But um, uh, ended up going to this radio station every Wednesday. Ended up co-hosting with a guy called Tango, who was an amazing, wonderful man, very inspiring and very funny. And my dad would always um, come and collect me afterwards and drive me home, which was a good, you know, hour and a half, two hour round trip for him to come and do that. But mm. um, always very supportive. And the same from mum, really. Always very excited about whatever I was up to and anything that sort of 
was uh, bringing me joy, was bringing them joy. So there's, there's been no resistance from them, which was potentially, if it had gone another way, terrible parenting, but it worked out all right. Yeah, yeah. And when did you realise that you were queer, I suppose? And did they realise first? Uh, I remember around that time when I was doing those shows at, um, in the theatre in the summers that there were kind of camp people around and openly out people and they weren't at school. Yeah. And I remember sort of finding boys attractive and thinking, oh, well, I'm probably gay then, aren't I? Sort of, and it was a dark realisation. I remember at the time thinking, like, this is bad. Like, I, sh- yeah. I, sh- I uh, this is not good news. Um, and trying to sort of think my way out of it. And I originally came out as gay and then backpedaled very quickly when I realised, oh, but women are fit, aren't they? So ended up sort of being bisexual. And then I talk about being pansexual in my stand-up, which is a word that I also use for myself, but it's a more kind of intellectual description of how I feel about myself. Bi is the kind of popular word, I would say, that most people understand, but... Mm pansexual is the kind of word that makes the most sense to me but then I, I've started using queer a lot more recently um, because I think it sort of encompasses that diversity that I was talking about of like it's not only like a sexual attraction thing it's a sort of it does filter more into my identity as someone that is unusual I suppose and someone that likes to mess around with the norms of society and things like that but in a kind of in a kind of fun way, I suppose. I think that's what I like about queer is like, it's like, oh, how queer, how unusual, how exciting. It's not like, he's a wrong one. I want to look up the dictionary definition of queer. I haven't done that. Well, it is, uh, to some elder gays, it's uh, it's still contentious because it was used as a a slur. Yeah, Um, I suppose, yeah. So um, I do occasionally get messages from people saying, I wish you'd stop using that word. but I won't. <laughs> so yeah. so, um, so but thanks for your message, but I won't. I think it's yeah. one of those where it feels so accurate for me that I, um, I'm happy to be called it. It's a nice kind of umbrella term, isn't it, for yeah. everything? But it, would, yeah. it wasn't in, in the old days. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, Joe, you cited for your childhood change these summer youth projects. Tell us a little bit more about Birmingham Alexander Theatre and, and what that did for you as a kid, please. Well, actually, it was my mum saw it in the paper saying audition in uh, for the summer youth project. And I think you'd audition in the Easter holidays and then you'd find out if you were in. And then it would be over a period of two and a half weeks, you'd audition very intensely over those two weeks and then put on five, six shows over a weekend at the end of the summer holidays. The first one we did was Guys and Dolls when I must have been, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. And then we did Fame and West Side Story and uh, Summer Holiday and basically anything they could get the rights to at the time <laughs> and um, with varying levels of quality. Um, but it was like, you know, people that work in musical theatre that directed it and, you know, proper um, orchestra and all of this like amazing stuff. Mm. So it was like a, an amazing experience, really. And uh, I just became addicted to it, really. And, you know, it was just amazing to be performing in a theatre like that 
often on the last night to you know it would be sold out i think it would it wouldn't sell quite as well on the on the build up but like to play the th- sold out theater at that kind of age and actually it was a real come down going to university because i studied drama and english and i thought it would just be more of the same but actually i wasn't getting roles at university and it was all a lot more kind of chin strokey and shakespeare and all yeah. of these things that i didn't actually i just wanted to show off really i didn't want to go yeah. into the kind of technicalities of Brecht and all that I don't, I don't care I'm not interested in that I just want to show off and and so yeah th- those shows were just sort of like halcyon days of really enjoying performing and tip of the iceberg of what um, performing could be for me I suppose. This realisation that you wanted to show off you enjoyed you thrived being in front of people and performing how mm. did that turn into comedy then? Well I always liked making people laugh so I was like making people laugh kind of backstage and right. then I was getting roles in, I mean like West Side Stories not a laugh a minute so it wasn't I wasn't doing it on stage particularly I think there were a couple of times when I had lines that got laughs and maybe that started a bit of that ball rolling mm. but it was at university really and, and I really admired comedy and I sort of couldn't believe how amazing it was as a thing that someone could be a stand-up comedian I sort of thought that was an extraordinary thing to do and such a brave thing to do at that time I was like wow and loved people like Alan Carr and Michael McIntyre and Lee Mack and all these people that I saw on uh, Live at the Apollo and it was at university, and in my second year, I went to this thing called King Gong. I was at University of Manchester, and King Gong was at the Comedy Store. And it's where people get up and they, the audience have cards, and if they don't like you, they put the card up, and if the three God. cards go up, you get gong. Brutal. Gong. It's so brutal. And my friend was like, I'm going to go along. Do you want to go along? And I was like, yeah, let's go and savage some yeah. idiots for trying stand-up. And then just drank a lot of Magnus and thought, well, I can do better than this. And the compere, a guy called Mick Ferry, who I know very well now, who's a brilliant stand-up, he was like, does anyone in the audience want to give it a go? And I was just like, I can do better than these pricks. And uh, I I absolutely couldn't, Annie. Uh, (laughs) I mean, did you have anything stored up in your head that you were going to say? Or was it all just spontaneous? No, I had one joke, which was about Madeleine McCann. Oof. And, uh, yeah, that was the reaction. <laughs> that was the reaction from the whole room, quite rightly. Because um, I thought that was what comedy was, like you just say something shocking and everyone goes, wow, I can't believe he said that. Whoa, 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 let's wank him off. Jimmy Carr style. Jimmy Carr style. And that absolutely has not be- <laughs> become the, the, what I've become. And you definitely need to have some joke structure there if you're going to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then I just floundered I had nothing to say and I wasn't even gonged off I just walked off because I didn't have anything and I was so drunk and so mortified I was just so embarrassed and my a couple of my friends were there and they were just didn't want to be with me anymore and like this whole thing was just awful I think actually that started this thing of like I've got to prove the people in that room wrong like I, I actually think I could be good at this and so that was a real catalyst I suppose but um don't know if that it's one of those isn't it like I, if that hadn't happened I have no idea what, what I would have done so was there someone funny in your life that made you laugh in that oh, way tons yeah like my dad's very funny and he would mm. like you know uh, family gatherings whatever really kind of hold court and tell amazing stories so I think there's a bit of that there and my mum's funny but in a different way and I don't think I don't remember finding her particularly funny when I was a kid but she's so funny now and and um 
she she's quite active on social media and she'll sort of comment on things that I've posted with sort of quite dry responses <laughs> or like kind of eye-rolling stuff to nonsense that I've done. It's People enjoy that, myself included. Um, yeah. But then there were lots of people like um, one of the directors of the Summer Youth Projects that we did at the Alex was very funny and he was very camp and sort of kind of almost sort of Oscar Wildean in the way that he talked. And yeah. I became really obsessed with Quentin Crisp around that time as well, mm. who... Um, I just still think is amazing. Mm. So, yeah, there's lots of sort of camp characters around that I found very funny. And I think I was quite irritating at parties because I really wanted to be funny. I really wanted to be, like, the funny one. So you had people around you that were funny in their own ways. Was there a point, as you started doing comedy more, where you found your own style? You know, when you realised, well, this is who I am now as a comedian. Yeah, I mean, it takes time with stand-up, and that's the thing I always say to people who want to try it. I just say, you've just got to do loads of it, unfortunately, yeah. and you've got to do loads of gigs where they hate you. Because Roy Walker, the old host of Catchphrase, who was also a brilliant stand-up, his advice to me was, you don't learn to be funny when they're laughing. And uh, that really stuck with me, because it's like, <laughs> that is absolutely true. Like, there's so, that yeah. moments where you're looking at an audience, and they're going, and you must have the same when, with, when you're DJing, DJing like, you're totally. kind of looking at the a crowd and going, oh, I'm losing them here. Yeah. And that's when you're scrambling around, like, what's going to get the them worst back feeling. and all that. Yeah. But it's, it's the worst feeling, but also the most productive feeling and the most sort of growing mm. that you'll do, isn't it, I suppose? And I, I imagine that's the same with any kind of um, crowd-facing job where you start to lose them. So do you think you can learn to be funny? Or do you have to have an element of being funny boned? You know, like Mm. if you look at someone like Billy Connolly, who like you literally just have to look at his face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you're laughing. Like Billy Connolly's so annoying because he he's one of the few comics, and there's not many ever in the history of comedy, who doesn't write stand up. He goes out on stage and follows his thread god and it's amazing and that there's people obviously like ross noble's very good at that james acaster i think is very good at that there's a few people who have that skill and Mm. i think billy's probably the best we've ever had I can't think of anyone better at it. I feel like he does something different to what the rest of us are doing. Like, I think he's doing kind of improv stand-up and the rest of us are kind of scrambling around doing trial and error, new material gigs, Mm. working out what's funny in front of rooms that aren't finding us funny, basically. And that's my Mm. process entirely. It's like this show involves a stunt that I've been working on for years, but once the stunt was complete... It then took me six months of going out three, four nights a week, reading out stuff, seeing if they laugh and if they don't, ticking and crossing as you go. And so the odds of them laughing at something that I've written are getting higher. But it's still like, if you asked me to go out tomorrow night and do 10 minutes of brand new stand-up, a lot of it would be shit. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a... um, I'm not really funny like all the time in in that mm. way. I'm not reliably. I'm sure I could find things and it'd be an interesting exercise. There's a there's mm. a gig actually that a lot of comics do aimed at facilitating this which is called um setlist. Have you ever heard of it? No. You go on stage, you're not allowed to do your routines or anything and there's a screen behind you and you go out and you say hello to the audience and then you say oh the first thing I want to talk about and you look back and they've given you Oh, a shit. thing to talk about and it'll right. be quite niche it'll be yeah. you know like I, I think I had one which was like why Hitler was right 
you know, right. like God. it will just be like something really, and you'll just have to go. I've brought you all here because I want to tell you how I think Hitler's right, and mm. you just have to find a routine there. You just have mm. to talk about something, and it's so terrifying. But it's so every comic that I know that's done it finds it so exhilarating mm. because you do you do find something. Your brain gives you something, and it might be shit, but there's sometimes you go, oh, actually, I could form that into something. And it's become like a bit of a drug for some comics that like they have to do set list, and they do it at festivals around the world. Yeah. I did it in Melbourne, and I really enjoyed it, but I wasn't in a hurry to do it again. You know, it was like, <laughs> it, it slightly revealed the, the weaknesses in my, um, in my skill, I suppose. Yeah. But then I love, I was thinking about this the other day, that somebody said they were coming to my show twice, and they'd come twice in two nights, and I was like, oh, but it's the same you'll just see the same show yeah but then I was thinking well playwrights write the same thing like you're not expecting totally. Romeo and Juliet to be a different thing every night like it is it's a show I've written a show but I think it's this sort of idea that people think oh comics are sort of inherently funny and everything they say is hysterical and and actually I'm not I'm not that funny basically <laughs> that's the, that's I the think- review I'm not, I'm not funny. Joe Lysett, I'm not that funny. Yeah, um, but do come to the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the nature of the show, though, because it it is very unique when it comes to, you know, stand-up comedy. It, it, it doesn't feel as much stand-up comedy from what I've read about it. There's more depth to it, I suppose, in terms of, as you say, it's a long-term project and there's a reveal. I know you can't obviously tell us what the reveal is, but yeah. what can you tell us about this? The more, 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 how do you Lysett, how do you Lysett show? yeah. It is my favourite thing I've ever done. And it it sort of happened... The stunt didn't happen by accident because I planned it. But what happened as a result of the stunt was so unexpectedly beautiful and and a real kind of example of the good of people, I suppose. The sort of premise of the show is that I'm trying to get my house price up, essentially. So it comes from a, a, a selfish desire... So basically piss off a friend of mine's boyfriend who's an estate agent who said I overpaid on the house. And it sort of starts from there. And then it's my... I love me- that it's just based on spite. Yeah, it's all, it's all spite. And it comes from this like very spiteful, um, selfish position. And then I obviously approach it in quite unorthodox ways. Yeah. The result was this sort of huge community thing that's the only way I can describe it it's like this like amazing moment of humanity coming together but it was totally unexpected it wasn't what I hadn't planned for that it came out of really I just I love people like Darren Brown and and I love those films like um uh, what's the one um with Kaiser Soze oh I know it um Uh, um um something is it um Uh, Kevin Spacey. This is our clip, guys. Suspect. Suspect. Usual Uh, suspects. Usual suspects. Boom. Usual suspects. I was close with um. Yeah. (laughs) It starts with a U. Love Darren Brown. Love usual suspects. Love those, like, things where there's, like, a twist at the end and you go, whoa, that was, oh, I didn't see that coming, but it was all sort of there. You know, it was that kind of thing. And I just wanted to create something with a bit of that in it as well. Yeah. It sounds intriguing. Yes. I can't wait wait to see it. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You mentioned your friend, David, and he is the person behind the biggest change of your adult life that you talk about. Mm. Tell us a little bit about David. Yeah, so David was the husband in the end um, of a great friend of mine that I went to university with. And her mum is Jenny Bevan, who is the uh, costume designer. Wow. uh, Who I live with when I'm in London. I live in Birmingham, but when I'm in London... Right. When I first started doing stand-up and got some gigs in London, she very um, kindly let me stay at the house. And it became apparent that that house was the sort of place where people stay. Like, she has all sorts, like, set designers and actors and all sorts of people. It's it's this lovely, gorgeous house in Peckham, and um, there's a lot of people that have stayed there over the years. I think I'm probably the one that stayed the longest because it's just a very happy place to live. Yeah. But... Um, after we'd all left university, Caitlin moved back there and I was staying on and off when I was doing shows. And she got this boyfriend basically called David and, and I met him and we just really got on well. And so as a sort of trio, we went on holidays and all this sort of stuff. But he was just so fascinated with the arts, really. He didn't work in the arts, he worked in finance. And so any opportunity he had to kind of do stuff in the arts, he was well up for. And so came to every and all gigs that he could and TV records and everything. And so actually there was no one in my life um, that had been to so many things across the spectrum of horrible gigs where I'd died on my ass and he'd sort of, we'd gone and nursed a pint afterwards to, you know, shows where, uh, you know, I'm on Graham Norton, he came to that and things like that, you know, just sort of been to everything. And um uh, he he had um, Crohn's disease, which is a, a, a bowel autoimmune disease, basically that can uh, result in, in cancer. And unfortunately, he got cancer. Oh, it was probably about five years ago now, and just oh. you know gradually sort of got worse and worse. But kind of had periods where he was better, and then you know ups and downs as these things um, are, are like. And so yeah, so uh, his partner Caitlin, who who he married, and um, was the most extraordinary day really it was like I'm not a big fan of weddings like I find them all a bit like Gugh. um yeah. I don't really believe them like I'm a bit like it's a performance I'm like yeah okay but I know you I know you both separately and I don't think you're you're fully on board with all of what you're saying here um but then these two like you know they've they got no skin in the game he's he's gonna die and within weeks and you know it's just an outpouring of love and we did it in their house in Lewisham and it was the most extraordinary, beautiful thing I've ever been to, really. Um, his sort of uh, demise or, um, or or illness, I suppose, was was something that kind of, I suppose, we'll all go through in different ways. And uh, But I'd not been through that before in that sense of like a kind of long illness and watching somebody, watching somebody die, I suppose. And that is um, obviously going to change you. I was making a lot of TV at the time as well. So sort of going from like his bedside to, uh, you know, trying to be an idiot and, and actually finding that I could do that quite comfortably and, and can be funny around these very dark things and losing someone who's very, you know, dear to you. 
I was I was capable of that quite easily um, and I thought that was interesting so I was just sort of learning loads about myself as well as like what it is to be a human with uh, friends and family and loved ones who are going to pass I suppose I found all of that really um, it was a lot you know it's a lot yeah. that, that sort of experience is um, endlessly and it's it, there's the, like the emotional side of it but then there's this like literally the practical side of it of like um hospital appointments and uh treatment and the kind of the ghoulish uh body side of it as well where there's you know watching someone go through horrible procedures and things like that and all all of those things which um I'd just not really been exposed to before I'd just been very fortunate I'd got you know 30 years through my life and not had to sort of see that with anyone and yeah it will have changed me forever undoubtedly and 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 I think for both good and ill, really. I think it will. It's. I was listening to. Have you heard the Dead Eyes podcast? No. It's a, about an actor who um, got a role in Band of Brothers, only a small role, in an episode that was directed by Tom Hanks. And then Tom Hanks decided that he didn't want him in the in the role anymore because he had dead eyes. And it's about this guy exploring. It's an amazing podcast, but I'm listening to it at the minute. And he talks about after that experience that he, he basically clipped his emotional range. And so he doesn't think he'll ever be as excited as he was when he got the role in Band of Brothers, but he um, doesn't also think he'll feel as low as he did when he lost it. Like he's sort of, he's, he's buffered himself on both sides and I can I can sort of see that a little bit like emotionally I can sl- slightly see that I've slightly created kind of parameters a, ca- a cap yeah of yeah. like I will only be happy to this level and I'll only be sad to this level and I don't think the happiness thing I'm not restricting myself but I, don't, I, I can sort of just feel that there's like I'm in a steady space mm. I'm not grieving for him particularly I'm, I'm not I sort of feel like I've done that and I'm but I'm also not like well, the world's going to be always amazing. Like, I've seen some horrible shit now, and I yeah. will not unsee that. And I'm, I'm not under the illusion that everything's going to be rosy forever. It's that sort of... It's it's part of growing up, isn't it, really? It's like you just mm. realise that things are things can go horribly wrong quite quickly. Yeah. Has it changed how you feel about your own life? Obviously, you have those initial things of seeing stuff you can't unsee, but in terms of how you're living your life on a daily, yeah. does it change? Massively, actually. There's loads of stuff I want to do. We were talking right. before about learning how to use garage band. <laughs> There's loads of things like that on my list where I go, I'd love to do that, I'd love to do that. And for a long time, that list just grew in my head of like, oh, I'd love to make a short film, I'd love to make a coffee table book and I'd love to do painting I'd love to do all these things but mm. just wasn't doing it I was like oh, I'll get round to that because at the minute I'm busy making telly or whatever it is or doing stand-up and actually there's been this explosion over the last few years and lockdown helped in the sense that I didn't have couldn't do anything else so I was sort of just doing other things but I've got this r- insatiable like desire to get stuff done and to right. try those experiences and and they're pretty much all creative things I'm not that fussed about kind of seeing the northern lights or whatever um it's it's about like I'd like to get good at painting and I'd like to learn garage band and I'd like to mm. I was watching these videos of um it's quite geeky but I, I love video games and there's this new engine called the unreal engine 5 which is what like loads of games will be built in and you can, I didn't realise, but you can just download it for free and learn how to make video games. And I was like, I would love to do that. Whether yeah. I'll actually get round to it, I don't know. But it's, it's things like yeah. that where I'm like, 
what's stopping me? I like you can download it for free. It didn't cost me anything. I could just have a go at that. And so there was a real sense, particularly in lockdown, of like I'm going to get on with that. And so I started making short films, and I'm doing that um, around every everything else at the minute, and really finding that very enjoyable and edifying and making this coffee table book which I've always wanted to do like make a really gorgeous book which I'm working on as well and, and is that yeah. for your art or is that it's about that? bins actually oh the bin thing of course yes I'm obsessed with bins Annie I love the idea of really trying to dig deep into that obsession with bins like where the hell does that come from I don't know but I love them <laughs> I've, li- I've got this wall I can just see now like hundreds of bins on my wall and they bring me such joy <laughs> Don't know. Don't know what it is. Just think that I love the word bin. I love they're everywhere. You're never far from a bin. <laughs> and someone's had to design it. Someone's had to put it together. Love it. And it's a very that's funny. What I um, call, that's what I call the holiday inns. I call them holiday bins. Lovely. They're kind, of, they're kind of bins for human beings, aren't they? A lot, yeah, you know, they well, are holiday bins. Well, we do get out of them at the end. Also, of the morning. can we can we discuss travel lodge? Mm-hmm. It's if it's travel lodge, there should be two L's. It's travel lodge. Is it all one word? It's all one yeah. word. So they've gone with travel lodge or trave yeah, no, that's lodge. Not okay. That's not trave okay. lodge. Yeah. What is that? It's not okay. You're right. It's just not I like okay. how pedantic you are about that. I would. I agree. So we've got to talk about the fake Sue Gray report. Oh yeah. I mean. <laughs> Just for those who don't know, talk us through how that happened and also the reaction you got off the back of that, if that's okay. Well, it started, I tweet stupid shit all the time um, to people that I don't like, basically. And it's, I think the first person I did it was Donald Trump. I would like tweet him as if I was his boyfriend and just be like really cutesy. But I've started doing it with other people and I do it with Boris. So when when he does Prime Minister's questions particularly when he's lying and um, and I get infuriated watching him do it and it makes me so cross. My response to that is to tweet him and say like, well done, babe. You know, like, don't let him get you down kind of thing. They're just jealous. And so I was doing a lot of that and at one point mentioned Nadine um, off of Nadine Dorries, um, yeah. but used the word Nadine. And I'd been out on the piss and then I got back and somebody, I was just looking through Twitter <clears throat> and the uh, I think the political editor of Joe.co.uk, oh, which yeah. I didn't realise yeah. had a political editor, editor, but they do, had like found that Nadine Dorries had retweeted my tweet, and then she deleted it very quickly. And I just thought that's crackers that like me <laughs> pretending to be Boris's boyfriend, essentially saying I'm with Nadine, I'm on your side. She'd seen that and gone right. Well, we must get that out. We must retweet that. I just yeah. thought, what what planet are these people on? <laughs> and so that got a bit of heat. And then the next day, I'd had this idea of writing a, a sort of joke Sue Gray report. And then just sort of put it together. And I'd sort of been chatting about it with friends of mine. And they'd come up with funny ideas for it. So we just put this like, list together of like what could be in that report. Yeah, and I just thought I'll just put it out as a tweet, and just it's a, it'll be get a, you know make a few people laugh, get a few retweets, and that's it. That's all I expected of it, mm-hmm. and it did quite well. And, and lots of people were saying like, "Oh, I, I found this quite believable." Until like towards the end, and then I got this message out of the blue on Instagram from someone saying they work for the Conservatives in Parliament, and that actually it was read out as a serious leak, and that the uh, MP staff were panic dialing their MPs, and there was this real like panic in Parliament. 
after this had been read out. I had it verified, and it's someone who works for a cabinet minister who did it, and they basically were like, these people are monsters, and um, and they're from Birmingham as well, and they're basically saying, like, keep keep representing Birmingham, and, <laughs> like, Boris needs to go and all this stuff. And, yeah, so I obviously then posted that and basically said how delighted I was that that was going on. But because there was such, like, heat on it and lots of people talking about it and getting in the press or whatever... That evening, I just I felt like I sort of wanted to talk about why I'd done it, like why why that sure. why I enjoyed that, and so I sort of drafted this thing of like of, of talking about David essentially and saying you know how cross I was about that, and then the response was extraordinary because actually it r- related to so many people because so many people went through the same thing went yeah. through someone dying in lockdown and the feeling of that you're being laughed at but also. And that's something I've been a lot in my life and, you know, and quite enjoyed most of the time. But also that, that feeling of um, it's a real insult to those people and it's a real degradation of sort of standards of what it is to be in public office and to represent people through a crisis. That there was no, there didn't seem to be any contrition or anything. Uh, and it's infuriating. It's really, really angering. And I think people were related to it. The, yeah, the response to it was amazing. I cried quite a lot that day because I, I knew David would have loved it. He loved like pissing people off in that way. And he loved whenever I was doing stuff like that. So it kind of brought a lot of that back, really. But um, mm. I knew he would have been very proud of it. And I wouldn't have done it without. And I checked with his widow as well about it. And she was mm. all on board with it. So, yeah, it was uh, it was quite an extraordinary thing, really. But I bumped into Nadine Dorries um, at the BAFTAs recently. Oh and uh, I was sat having the meal and um, Scott Bryan came over and he was like, Nadine Dorries is here. And I was like, where? And he was like, I don't know, I've just heard she's here. So I then went like, scuttling around the room. He was quite busy, like trying to find her and clocked her. And I just went up to her and I was... I made myself very small. I sort of crouched down next to her and I said, oh, hi, Nadine, um, you follow me on Twitter? And she went, oh, do I? And I said, yeah, yeah, and you retweeted me the other day. Um, I'd, um, I'd tweeted Boris, um, sort of supportive tweet to Boris. And she went, oh, I don't remember that. That's probably um, Luke from my team. He runs my Twitter account. And then her daughter had come round and the daughter went, no, don't you remember, Mum? Uh, I rang you because it was going viral. I was completely threw under the bus. And she went, oh, yes, I'm sorry, I think of you as the sewing man, so I didn't put two and two together. <laughs> and so then, then we were, like, chatting about it, going like... I said, and yeah, yeah, I sort of talk about it in my stand-up show, so thanks for giving me some material. And she went, oh, how, well, I'm, glad, I'm happy that that's happened, or whatever. And then um, AJ Adudu came over, who's an old friend of mine, and yeah. she's such a ball of energy. And so it was like me, AJ Adudu, and... Nadine Dorries and her daughter stood hell? at the BAFTAs. And AJ had a friend with her, this um, guy who basically just said, whispered in my ear, like, I cannot be near that woman. I have to, I've got to be somewhere yeah. else. Like, basically just said, I'm going away. And then I just thought, like, it was all going so well. I was being, like, a bit sarcastic. And Scott actually was stood to the side as well. Scott was there. But I just felt like... I can't leave this situation with her thinking that I'm a fan or that, yeah, I, yeah. that, that I approve in any way of who she is and what she does. Mm. And so I just felt like this was sort of my time to sort of um, to go for it. So I said, I said something along the lines of like, I really admire the gall that you had to support Boris Johnson during Partygate when the rest of the country didn't. And AJ Dudu went, oh, it's all got very heavy here. And I was like... <laughs> 
don't don't diffuse this Ajax. And then yeah. and then Nadine went. Well, I'm going to disagree with you there actually because I've seen the opinion polls and actually he's very very popular with the country and she sort of clicked immediately into like Tory yeah, politician mode, mode, like very yeah. defensive. And um, and then she like walked off basically. And her daughter told me that she thought I'd um, I'd cut the sh- shut down debate or whatever, but also said that she was a big fan and wanted to come to see my show. <laughs> so I was like, well, your mum follows me on Twitter, so get her to uh, get her to DM me. Get She's DM welcome me. whenever. Um, but it was such a like extraordinary thing because I came away afterwards thinking like I'd really felt like I'd looked into a void, <laughs> and I don't mean that like. Um, uh, as a joke, really, I did. I actually do. I, f- I feel like there's something really missing there, and I think I think she's very dangerous. I think she's such a big part of this government and always parrots whatever Boris wants her to. And 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 it was fascinating looking into her eyes, into the whites right. of her eyes, and watching it happen, and go, ah. There's no way. There's no. There's, there's not no a, there's way not Tom a... Hanks would have her in Band of Brothers. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's something's been lost here, uh, mm-hmm. or whether it was ever there in the first place. And her daughter did. Talk, her daughter was very sweet and said that you know she doesn't always agree with her mum's opinions, and but you know. Um, there's a there's there's ways of talking to people. And I said, oh, maybe I shouldn't have used the word gall. Maybe that was where I went wrong. Um, <laughs> But it was frightening, actually. It is quite yeah. scary to meet these people. And then Therese Coffee was at the Netflix party. I was like, Jesus oh Christ, God. it's like swimming with fucking snakes, this thing. And um, who, who at Netflix went, we should invite Therese Coffee, the Department for Work and Pensions? She was a lot more agreeable. And I sat, well, basically, she was sat with someone uh, I know and they didn't know who she was and she was just talking their ear off. And they said, who is this woman? Like, she just keeps talking to me. And I was like, oh, that's um, Therese Coffee. She's the Department for Work and Pensions. Don't worry. I've got a good history of getting rid of Tory politicians tonight. So I'll sit with <laughs> Leave her. it to me. Leave it to me. So I sat with her for 20 minutes and again watched her sort of click into... She was a lot more, like, jolly and she'd had a few drinks, whatever. Um, watched her click into sort of... Um, Tory mode when I asked about Partygate and where, at what point did she feel um, that Boris should go and she yeah. just sort of went well you know we'll wait for the report and I just was like oh god this shit again and then I, I, the, the, the most insightful thing I got out of her is I just said Therese do you think power corrupts and she went hmm <laughs> I think it makes people um, complacent I don't think it makes them corrupt and I was like well that tells you everything you fucking need to know <laughs> The woman who's instigating universal credit and all that. Great. See ya. Joe Lysett, what is the change you would still like to make or see for yourself moving forwards? I've been right on my old soapbox today, haven't I? I love it. Um, I've given myself anxiety about the bloody government. I think right now it would be to get this government out, mm. basically. Mm. I think they've got to go. We have to restore some uh, moral dignity to our um, government. That's the change I would love to see immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it's extraordinary to me to be saying this on a public podcast. I've not been the sort of person to do that, but they've got to go. We have to, we have to find a way of removing them from power. Mm. Uh, for me... I'd love a swimming pool. Yeah. Understand. Relatable I'd, comedian, man of the people, Joe Lysett, <laughs> would like a swimming pool, please. If you could make that happen, Annie Mac, please. 
Don't you go swimming with your mum? I read that, that you go swimming with your mum once a week or something. Yeah, we go swimming That's to her gym. too cute. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Um, I love swimming and I'm very good at it, Oh, if I say so myself. Well, I'm jealous. I'm very good at front crawl and I get so much of out of swimming and I started doing more cold water swimming and went in the sea in Bournemouth when I was there on tour and just love it. I'd like to be closer to bodies of water. Maybe I just need to move to the coast, but I love Birmingham and annoyingly Birmingham is the furthest from the coast you can possibly be in this country. <laughs> so I need to bring the coast to me. So I'd like a swimming pool. Problem is my garden is not big enough for a swimming you pool. You could maybe get a plunge pool if you're into the cold water Ooh, swimming. You know, just, like, just a like a very deep, very mm, small pool that's freezing. Yeah. You just jump in and out. I do love a plunge pool. Mm. I mean, Maybe people not. have said hot tubs and all of that, but I like to get a swim on, so I'd like to do a length. So I'd like yeah, it to yeah, be yeah. like 15 metres. doesn't need to be yeah. that wide, just like a lap yeah. pool. But I don't have the space for it in the garden, so it's a change that will not happen. But if I can get rid of the Tories, that would be great. <laughs> it's good to have change to aspire to. It's good to have change to move yes. towards, you know. Yes. 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 Um, Joe it. thank you so much for bringing us and talking us through your changes today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yes, a pleasure as well. What a man. The obsession with bins, I cannot get over. I should say that after we spoke, Joe sent me some gorgeous prints of his art and also a little note written on a postcard with a photo of a bin on it. Joe is on tour now with more, more, more. How do you lice it? How do you lice it? You must go. And you can watch Travel Man on Channel 4. Next week, I'm delighted to say we have renowned Irish author Roddy Doyle, a Booker Prize winner for Paddy Clark, ha, 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 and author of 11 acclaimed novels, including The Commitments, The Snapper, The Van, and Smile. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe or follow the podcast. And before I go, I must remind you that myself and Ella Viday, the incredible drag queen and drag persona of Nick Collier, are going to be in conversation for the first ever Changes Live. It's happening on the 24th of May in London. And if you want to come, if you're interested, if you want to be part of that audience, it's thepodcastshowlondon.com. That's where you go to get your tickets, thepodcastshowlondon.com. And we'll, of course, put a link to that in the episode notes. Thank you, folks. Thanks so much for listening. This episode has been produced by Louise Mason for DIN Productions and I'll see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.